to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. I am Daria Brown, and this week we have Dr. Alex Klein, who is a licensed clinical psychologist in Oakland, California. He is in both private practice and works at the Kaiser Oakland Medical Center, where he does assessments and therapy with both children and adults with neurodevelopmental differences. He's trained with Dr. Greenspan, Jake Greenspan and Tim Bleeker, and Dr. Tippy and Tina McCourt at the Rebecca School, where he was a head teacher and then a floor time coach before moving out west for graduate school many years ago. I saw uh, Dr. Klein's presentation at the Rebecca School New York City DIR conference last month. That's actually what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you so much for coming, Alex. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Daria. It is uh, so great to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and thank you for everything you're doing to uh, get the DIR model out there. Yeah, right. it's great. It's great because I, I did the podcast for other parents to be able to implement DIR floor time. And it's really amazing to me how many practitioners listen to it. The direction that the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning has been moving towards is more of this neurodiversity framework over an old medical model. And of course, Dr. Greenspan was a psychiatrist. He was in the medical model, but he was really forward thinking by focusing on strengths and not deficits. And I'm sure he would have embraced neurodiversity to its fullest. And that's where some of the language that DIR floor time has traditionally used has evolved with the times. And this presentation really captures that. So I'm so excited to present this to the listeners today. For those of you listening on audio, we'll describe what you're seeing. You can also see it on YouTube or at the blog post at affectautism.com. Take it away, Alex. Well, again, uh, thanks so much for having me on. And I'm excited to talk about this topic that I am extremely passionate about. I really got into the idea of learning more about neurodiversity and what it means to be neurodiversity affirming in our care and neurodiversity informed in the care I do uh, a really long time ago when I was actually before my DIR floor time days, I was working as a home-based ABA therapist. And a lot of people who have maybe moved to work in other models and other uh, types of therapy, I was quite disenchanted with some aspects of ABA. And it prompted me to try and do some more research into like, well, there's got to be some criticisms of ABA out there. And, and it was through that many years ago that I started reading more books, essays, online blog posts from autistic adults, learning more and more. And so that's sort of how I originally got into more interested in the neurodiversity paradigm. How can we reframe our understanding of disability and the autism spectrum? Because I think it needs a fundamental reframe in the way that we understand it, talk about it. I'm going to get into that some more. Another key question that has come up is how can we do better in assessing for autism? There's a lot of real challenges and problems that I want to talk about in some more detail. How should we be supporting autistic people and their families? And how does this fit into a DIR floor time framework? And how, how well do they intersect? So 
This next slide I have for the listeners, it's a picture of three autistic adults. And the emphasis, again, that I really think needs to be spoken about and prioritized are autistic voices and really letting them lead the conversation. And there has, it's been nice to see sort of more of a proliferation of that in writings and videos, but there's some people who still maybe feel a little defensive or when let's say it's a non-autistic practitioner or parent who, you know, might be hearing some views from an autistic self-advocate about therapy and treatment and various aspects. I still notice there's some kind of defensiveness or dismissiveness that sometimes comes out with practitioners. And, and I really think that we, we need to be very cautious of that. I think that we need to really pause and be curious and reflective. So another point I want to emphasize that I think is really critical in how we understand the autism spectrum, how we understand disability, and particularly when it comes to working with children, but really with anybody, with adults as well, is this concept of let's not focus so much on changing the child but changing the system around the child. By changing the system around the child, we of course could see behavioral improvements or more regulation from the child. What happens a lot is that there is a lot of focus on, okay, these are the skills that the child needs to, needs to build, or these are the things that the child should or should not be doing. Rather than doing that, what I wanna see more and more of is sort of a focus of the system around the child. Uh, so that's maybe the way that the parent parents are interacting with the child, right? Uh, maybe uh, the way the school or, or peers or other students are accepting differences, teachers and, and administrators in schools. Also, it gets even broader to think about how ableism plays out in systemic ways, political advocacy. So I, I, what I want to see is sort of much more focus from practitioners and from families and from everybody on sort of how do we make the world a more accepting place rather than so much focus on changing something within the child. And this really gets into this issue of where is the problem located, right? Like when there's a challenge, there's an issue, an outburst, or do we view this problem as something that is within the child? Or do we view this as something that's within a larger system that is not doing good enough? And that really gets into something you mentioned earlier, Daria, about the medical versus social model of disability, you know, with the medical model suggesting that the disabled person is deficient in some way, that there's something inherently wrong with them. Whereas the social model says, well, actually, we have these broader issues in society that need to change. And so that is sort of a really fundamental rethinking is something really important to emphasize. And it's almost like a what comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of question when you think about it, because for parents, it, it's definitely a process and a journey. And with my website, what I try to do is be that bridge between the professional world and the parent world and try and bring in the other views as well. And I'm trying to do that more and more so as I learn more about neurodiversity as I learn more about neurodiversity, I wonder if I am neurodiverse myself. We know there's a large genetic component to autism, although mm -hmm. what, you know, as a psychologist, you diagnose people and, and unless 
you're having some kind of issues, parents don't bring children for a diagnosis. So while I never had challenges per se, so many of my traits I see in my son, so many of behavioral tendencies or different traits and the way neurodiverse people think about things mm -hmm. that I read online, mm -hmm. I think the exact same way, but mm -hmm. it hasn't been debilitating or a disability for me in the way like overwhelming sensory processing issues that just make it impossible to be in a large classroom of kids, for example. Right. And so I, I think of it as, you know, yes, we have this system that really is not ideal at all because you find out, you know, your child is suddenly not progressing on that developmental trajectory that is listed, which is a neurotypical child's developmental trajectory. And then you start to panic. And then you have this intervention saying this, 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 this is wrong. He's not meeting these things. She's not doing this. She's not doing this. And that's where it starts. So right off the bat, it, I say, is it the chicken or the egg dilemma? Because if that system were instead to say, we, we are a spectrum of people, there's neurodiversities, hmm, I wonder what kind of child I'm going to have <laughs> and make it more like that, then people wouldn't see it as this tragedy or, oh, you know, people still to this day will say to me, if I say my son's autistic, oh, I'm sorry, you know? And at first, when I used to hear that, I found that validating because I thought, oh, thank you for having sympathy for the struggle that I'm going through, accepting that my life is harder than I thought it was going to be in all of these things that anyone who's a self-advocate listening is going, ah, you know, right. but that's the process that parents are on. So maybe if we thought that was the chicken, the system is the chicken and the, the other is the egg, then maybe if you do the egg first, we're reaching parents. I'm trying to get them on this journey I have the parents support virtual meetups every week through ICDL and people coming in are at all different stages. Some of them, their child just got diagnosed. They're in tears. They're very filled with grief about not knowing what to do. Who's going to care for my child? You know, they might have a child who's not even one yet or not even two years old. And they're worrying about what's going to happen when they pass away and who's going to take care of my child to people that had done ABA for years and they realized that floor time is a much better approach and or an ABA wasn't working and it was traumatic and didn't sit well with them and they come to floor time and they've accepted who their child is. It really is a process, such a process for parents to get from the point of, I need to intervene and change my child to my child's great, I need to support my child and provide all of the supports that are there, but certainly our society is not set up to do that. I really like that you um, emphasize that. And I think you, you made a lot of really important points there, you know, and I do think that we need as, as sort of professionals to, you know, meet parents where they're at and people are allowed to have the feelings that they're going to have. 
Um, and I think we also need to keep in mind parents are born into an ableist system too. The messages that get conveyed to children get conveyed to, to parents and to get conveyed to everybody. And to talk a little bit more about this, the way that we deliver a diagnosis, let's say if we're assessing and talk about it as this awful thing and, or, you know, or only talk about the deficits, that's a real problem too. So in and along those lines, Many people think of the autism spectrum or people, hey, name some challenges associated with the autism spectrum, some, some difficulties. I think it'd be easy for people to name you know, five, 10 different characteristics maybe that are, that are challenges and are disabling. But if you ask the same person, you know, could you name five, 10 strengths associated with, with autism? That's a harder question, right? And there are strengths associated with autism, whether that's being more detail oriented or having a great memory often, or being more sort of rule bound and social justice oriented or being non-judgmental and loyal. You know, there's lots of things that we now know to be associated with the autism spectrum, but those are not things that really get discussed or talked about. So that is something that I think it is really important. You mentioned Daria, when people now come to you and say, you, you might tell them that your son is autistic and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And you're saying like, oh, you don't really like that anymore. It doesn't really feel good. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that practitioners do that too. And of course there's challenges and of course we need to meet parents where they're at, but there's a way that we uh, also as practitioners focus the conversation on deficits in a way that I don't find to be helpful. So, so there's a lot of reframe. And, and this next slide here about language is important, right? I mean, if you look at the diagnostic criteria of autism, it says things like rigid thinking, difficulties being flexible can be a real challenge, but it can also be a strength, right? So if you're asking, how does your child show some persistence in their beliefs? How do they show, show that they have a strong sense of, of justice or a strong sense of wanting to argue their point in a way that they, they seem to really be able to persist uh, in an impressive way? Or rather than saying, is your child controlling, do they have a, a high need for control? That is a very small difference. But I think that even small differences in language are important. Many autistic adults and, and a solid majority have been expressing a preference for saying, no, I'm an autistic person. This is an autistic child. Like we don't need to separate autism as something that's sort of separate from the person. Like I'm owning this, this is part of me and that's okay. And so that's the language I use here. There's also language around high functioning and low functioning language that I think can be problematic where, uh, oh, your, your son is so high functioning. So therefore he doesn't need A, B, and C in school, or we don't see the issues. And that's not really helpful for a child and saying a child is labeled as low functioning is an, another type of problem where maybe this child is understanding a lot more than they're saying. And, and they have uh, abilities that can really shine in certain environments or certain situations, but giving them a low functioning label kind of puts them in a box in a way that's not appropriate or helpful for the child. So those are some ways that language matters, but also in just in terms of the symptoms, like I was saying before, what does she uh, show a lot of passion around or rather than saying like, oh, well, what kind of highly restricted or obsessive interests does your child have that we need to get rid of? Maybe they don't say it quite like that, but there is a difference when we ask, where's, where's your child's expertise and, and passion? Even something like 
transitioning, which of course is difficult. It can be a difficulty and a challenge. How does your kid really go deep into their experiences? Are they kind of trying to rush from activity to activity? Is that, do they like to really kind of stick with one thing? Again, subtle differences, but when we talk about it as in these ways, it gets out of this, oh, autism is a tragedy and I'm going to talk about it that way which again can, I think, influence the, the, the coping and, and, you know, these messages get conveyed to kids and it's a real problem. I couldn't agree more. Like what you said is so important about the assessments, the number of assessments I've completed about my child. They're such insulting questions. This brings up another point. A lot of self-advocates saying autistic people need to be the voice and the experts, not neurotypical people like you and me, Dr. Klein, talking about it. But there's also value in relating to the parents who really don't know much about autism and get that first diagnosis. Someone like me who has neurodiverse characteristics, but also has never been diagnosed and, and had a relatively easy life with a child that I'm now respecting, understanding, embracing DIR and really incorporating uh, neurodiversity and listening to a lot of voices doesn't make me an authority or a self-advocate, but it can be a bridge to that because as you said at the beginning, there is a defensiveness about someone for the first time expecting what everybody expects when they have a child and then all of a sudden getting a diagnosis. To have an autistic adult could have a different effect on different people. If you have autistic adults in your family and you've had good experiences and you're like, oh, okay, my child is like so-and-so, like me, like uncle so-and-so, like whoever. On the other hand, it could be very scary. And if you don't really understand what autism is and all of a sudden this is your child's future and it's so different than you expected, it's really hard to look at that right off the bat. It, it's more a process of sometimes that idea that, okay, I'm, I'm giving my child support. You know, a lot of parents think I'm going to catch them up before they get to school so that they can enter mainstream school. And sometimes that does happen. Did not happen for us, but I know I felt that rush at the beginning. I have to do all of these therapies. I have to try everything that's out there, even if it seems completely pseudoscience to me because if it might work then it's worth it so i gotta try everything and then we could get off track here by talking about all the scammers that are out there but after years and years you learn more about all of this stuff and you become more accepting of what your reality is and that's the value of having neurotypical people who are experts in the area some self-advocates might say you can't be an expert if you're not autistic yourself, but right. I think introducing these issues is important because our audience is neurotypical. Yes, you brought up a lot of really good points there. I do think we're starting to see some more opportunities and I want there to be even more of sort of collaboration between neurodivergent adults, autistic self-advocates, parents of neurodivergent kids. Some of those parents are neurodivergent themselves. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's these strong genetic uh, components. It's incredibly important, as I said earlier, for practitioners and parents to be really taking in that what are what are their thoughts what are their experiences incorporate that in our thinking and our language and our approach and the next 
piece I really like to talk about is how neurodiversity informed care also really needs to be trauma informed care because trauma is a really significant piece. And this is not just for parents who you mentioned before, I have nothing but compassion and, and admiration. And you mentioned sort of trying to get all these therapies and trying to catch your kids up. Again, parents are born into an ableist system with the wrong messages often sent. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong about supporting your child and giving them therapies. So I'm not sort of making a blanket statement around that. Um, but we do really need to keep in mind the um, impact of trauma. So for example, uh, there was a study where autistic adults were post traumatic stress symptoms were measured and almost half had experienced post-traumatic stress symptoms. Some of this was associated with their particular experiences with ABA, which as you may already know, you know, we, we've touched on many autistic adults in the, in the community have been speaking out about many, many aspects of ABA. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but trauma also could be whether it's bullying in a school, a kid getting bullied, we see higher rates of, uh, of that amongst uh, ki uh, disabled kids and autistic children, sensory assaults, right? So kids, just their neurobiological underpinnings are very maybe sensitive to the sights and sounds of the world. I mean, that can be experienced with, with, as, as traumatic. Uh, and especially when people aren't around the child, aren't really understanding that, or maybe just seeing this kid's behavior, not as a stress response to sensory overstimulation, but instead a purposeful misbehavior or something like that becomes a real well, problem. Yeah. I mean, a, a great example of that, that I heard, and I believe it was through one of the companies that offers sound and listening therapy, but it was a story of a woman. And I'm sure people listening will be like, oh yeah, I heard that story too. And they might email me to say what it was but this woman was describing being a child and when it rained outside it literally sounded like bullets being shot like like shotgun and she would literally just have to sit like this now if you don't know what that sounds like you might think what what the heck like it's raining it's rain right but to have that kind of experience and then also she described sitting in the back seat of her car going on a road trip with her parents and the parents friend, uh, a woman was in the back seat and her voice was so irritating to the girl. Like she had to listen to this woman talk the entire trip. And she was just like, you know, just like doing whatever she could to avoid it and right. nobody understanding and her herself not understanding and thinking this is how everybody experiences it, but they're not acting the way I am. So something must be wrong with me. So that in itself is the definition of trauma, what you're talking about, these sensory assaults where what is wrong with me? Why, why am I experiencing this? And when people can't relate to it and you can't speak yet and communicate that, or even if you are a communicator, kids don't really talk about things like that, even neurotypical kids until, you know, they're a lot older. They, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to say stuff like that. You don't think to tell your parents something like that. And then this listening therapy totally changed this woman's life. But <laughs> that's right. a side note. But yeah, it, it, there is a lot of trauma involved in this for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think even sort of knowing the history of the way we've understood autism and done therapy can be traumatic in and of itself. I mean, uh, you know, there's a real history of, of parent blaming and mom blaming refrigerator mom theory. Um, I've had autistic adults really disturbed by the fact that there's some of the early ABA 
uses in children was around, you know, boys that were acting feminine and stuff that we think or know to be, you know, highly unethical. And simply knowing, you know, this this history and, and knowing what what could have happened in a different situation uh, is really understandably disturbing and traumatic for some people. So we really need to be um, trauma informed and also prioritize that piece. In the next slide, I really like to think about in applying an intersectional lens here, right? So how how do autism, gender, race? And other identities intersect. This is another really critical piece. We see that routinely black and brown children are diagnosed later than white children, more likely to be misidentified. I can think of many examples, even recently, kids that I think were pretty clearly on the autism spectrum and should have been identified as such. But maybe this is an African-American child who the uh, oppositional aspects of behavior were sort of emphasized in other people's minds. So this kid gets an ODD oppositional defiant diagnosis, which kind of implies more sort of intentional misbehavior rather than this child getting an autism spectrum diagnosis, which I think is a much more accurate way to interpret some of the challenges we're seeing. As applied to girls and, and, and women, I mean, we see higher rates of assault and mistreatment and, and abuse. Um, that's really important to be aware of that as a, as a practitioner, as a, as a parent. Uh, you, we know that women face even more pressures to mask or camouflage autistic traits in some way. And we know that there's a real harm in that, that, that has negative impacts on one's mental health to feel like you have to sort of mask and, and hide who you are. We know that there's more boys diagnosed than girls, and a lot of that could be, well, in the original studies, looking at autistic traits, there was way more boys in those studies. So maybe we're missing how the different ways that autism can present itself. We know that, again, more pressures to be social and the masking can be a factor in that. So again, you know, with different groups, there's more stigma associated with the diagnosis and mistrust of professionals is also an issue that we need to be aware of as practitioners. And finally, we, we are, we're seeing there's some studies that show this a high overlap of uh, trans and gender nonconforming kids and adults and autistic identities. So there seems to be a lot of kids that I'm seeing and adults where, you know, they have both of those identities and what are the special issues that that community faces. So it's critical to be intersectional in the way that we think about these issues. Another point I like to emphasize is the, the why not what is, is how I call it. So a really common thing that I hear uh, from families or from teachers, for example, a uh, teacher calls a parent, say like, you know, your kid threw the, the pencil at this other kid and ran out of the classroom twice. You need to like get, get your kid in line or something like that. Probably not said quite that directly, but sometimes the implication is your kid is doing these things that are problematic, like deal with it or do something about it. Or, uh, you know, or, or might hear from a family again, like, okay, the, the aggression, it looked like this, it took this long to calm down. Or so, so this is the what of, of the behavior, what behaviors occurred. I hear a lot about that. I am far more interested in, you know, well, why did the behavior occur? It's sort of a pet peeve of mine when there's this like hyper focus on the, what the actual behavior is, because to, if we don't understand why the behavior occurred, we don't really know how to try and prevent it the next time. And along those lines, well, this is just attention-seeking behavior, this running out of the classroom or 
throwing the pencil at another student or acting out at, at home or not getting along with the sibling, just sort of attention-seeking behaviors. And then the implication often when you know, these, these behaviors are labeled as attention-seeking is like, well, then you should ignore it. But that language is, and that way of interpreting it is, is very much not a compassionate and neurodiversity affirming way to view these behaviors. Kids, you know, along the lines of what uh, the psychologist Ross Green says in the book I love called The Explosive Child, kids do well if they can. And, you know, if your kid is if there is an attention-seeking component, well, why is there an attention-seeking component? Does not mean we ignore it. We still want to understand why. We still want to support the kid to, to regulate. So that's the thing I see coming up again and again is this less emphasis on the why. And we really need to reshift it to understand, well, why did these behaviors happen? What happened in the environment around the child that made a difficult behavior more likely to occur? How can we change the environment to be more specific? How can we change the way as a parent or a teacher, the way we speak to the child so that this behavior is less likely to occur? What was the trigger? Was there a sensory thing going on? You know, like these are critical questions rather than all this time and attention focused on what the details of what the problematic behavior is. I love that you mentioned that because not only Ross Green, but Dr. Stuart Shanker's self-reg talks about it yes. being stress Huge behavior. If the child is acting out, looking at the why, but not just for kids on the spectrum, but for all kids, like why is there even something called oppositional defiant disorder? To me, that's completely insane. Yeah. And just such, not only an ableist view, but an adult-centered view, like completely ignoring stages, developmental stages that children go through which right. if you did if you did these things as an adult, yes, you might be seen as oppositional, but as a two-year-old, it's completely healthy, right. <laughs> healthy behavior. So, so many practitioners and educators and, and all of that are, are trained in, with this, not only maybe explicitly trained in behavioral approaches, but also our culture is very behavioral. Right. And I, I'm so glad that we're starting to see a shift towards developmental models where we understand that all children are good. And if they're not being quote unquote good, there's a reason for it. And let's look into what that is and let's support them and help right. them grow. And right. that attention seeking, just two quick comments about that. Yeah. In a sense, it is seeking your attention to notice what I'm going through and right. look at the why behind the behavior, but right. it's not an intentional misbehavior per se. And Jake Greenspan had shared that he liked to call it rather emotion seeking. And I did a podcast uh, a few weeks ago about this with a couple of DIR practitioners. And we were sort of bringing that topic up again, where the child is really not, again, not intentionally saying, oh, I'm going to seek out this but it's clear that they need more emotionally rich interactions and they're craving that. And right. when you do more floor time sessions and you really attune to them and play with them and, and you know, do that kind of floor time work, then these so-called emotion seeking or attention seeking behaviors will tend to drop because they feel safer, they feel trusted, they feel understood. Right. Yeah, really great points. Thank you. On this next slide, there's a picture of a young adult named Harry Thompson, who's written some books and does a lot of consultations and talks about PDA, pathological demand avoidance, which is a profile 
on the autism spectrum that is not that well known, at least in the US. This is, you know, came out of the UK and it's considered, uh, you know, a profile on the autism spectrum. Um, I don't love the term pathological demand avoidance because it's kind of stigmatizing. Sometimes I, you know, hear the term extreme demand avoidance or demand avoidant profile, which is probably a bit better way. I, I also think you could call it like a demand anxiety disorder in a way. Um, so this is really an important thing when we're sort of trying to be neurodiversity affirming and kind of gets at the central role of anxiety and, and the high need for control that we were talking about earlier um, that some kids experience in, in response to demands, whether that's a demand to get, get ready for school or start writing uh, a sentence or go to bed or whatever it is, you know, whatever expectations are, there's a subset of kids that experience extreme anxiety in the face of these requests and demands. What I like about sort of having this as a sort of a label is that it helps us to understand how typical recommendations that you see around when there's an autism diagnosis, again, things are still largely behavioral. It's like, well, we need to do these, you know, this reward and, and consequence system. We need to try to inf uh, enforce compliance in the child. And there is a, absolutely a subset of kids where that does not work, is raising anxiety and is frankly can be traumatizing for a child. Understanding this type of profile is, is also really critical um, to sort of being more neurodiversity affirming because these are kids that I think practitioners are not doing a good enough job in understanding and really helping families to understand um, and frankly making recommendations that are contraindicated. So that's another thing I, I wanted to sort of throw into this larger neurodiversity presentation because it ties in to the, the larger pieces there. Rebuilding assessment practices is another piece that I want to emphasize. We've touched on this earlier today, but I'm not just talking about these unacceptably long waits from the time a child is referred for an assessment to the time of diagnosis and then the, the wait from diagnosis to services. I mean, those are all problems too. Uh, but what I'm getting at here is what you touched on, Daria, earlier, the questions that clinicians are asking uh, in these assessments, like, does your child use toys inappropriately? Does she speak in an abnormal tone or odd manner, talking about things that other people don't care about? Again, that's one way to put it, but those are quite judgment-laden ways of putting it. Um, because who decides whether the object or toy is being played with appropriately or inappropriately, or who decides whether the tone is odd or abnormal in, in speech? These are very deficit focused here, I think is the point. I've listened to numerous neurotypical people go on and on about things that I don't care about and have no, sure. no indication, you know, right. no um, indication that they're seeing my boredom on my face right. <laughs> and being right. polite and listening. Yes. So, yeah. And, and even just this picture speaks to it because has anybody who's gone in for a diagnosis had a child smiling, sitting calmly like yeah, that? And my kid's screaming, trying to get out of there, complaining. And again, a white family. And these are the types of photos that we have available to us. Right. This year of the pandemic has brought forth a lot of issues that needed to come to the surface. They're just starting to get talked about. And yeah. so, um, yeah, these are the things that absolutely need to change going forward. Yeah. And, and I think we need to ask way more about strengths. And I remember in, um, you know, Dr. Greenspan, 
I was working at the, the Rebecca School, the DIR four-time school in New York. We would have these conferences where he would kind of call in and we'd all be huddled around a speakerphone. You know, this is way back in the day. He was always way more interested about what the child was capable of and what the child sort of looked like at their best and what they were passionate about. He, he actually did a better job of this than many, even though he started doing this work back in the 70s and 80s. Again, it's like, asking things like, well, how, what kind of awesome ways does your kid show excitement? Or like, does your kid flap their hands in an odd way? Like these are hugely different ways of conveying the question. Again, we really want to be more thoughtful in the, in the way that we ask the question, where you're conveying that there's something wrong with your kid and therefore worsening maybe a parent's coping with the diagnosis. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways that these things intersect. And another thing I see that happens a lot in assessments that I want to do a much better job of is that there can be dismissive statements from the primary care practitioner or a therapist about dismissing parental concerns. I've seen that thing happen where parents she should immediately assume their concern is valid and, and and address it. And I've seen kids get denied autism assessment based on stereotypes. So for example, if a child has friends and wants friends, I've seen uh, you know pediatricians say, well, autistic kids can't, you know, don't don't want friends. So therefore we're not going to assess for autism. Right. So this is not appropriate, not accurate based on on stereotypes. And this gets into the next slide where we talk about dismissing and, and stereotyping, right? Like, you know, oh, but you want friends that I've seen this with adults uh, who've come to me for assessments. They've not been diagnosed at any point in their lives. And I think, you know, they've been told, oh, but you make eye contact or you showed empathy in this situation. So therefore it is not, you know, you can't be autistic. That's something that we really need to, to get out of. Again, know that these are based on stereotypes. Yes, there are social differences associated in the diagnosis, but we want to be really careful not to be sort of stereotyping and assume these things that are, are not true. And I think you're, you're going to point it out later, um, maybe, but that's just not even true. Autistic people do want friends and right. there's a reason why they don't make direct eye contact as often as maybe neurotypicals would or in different situations. And they absolutely show empathy, if not more so than neurotypicals. So just in case people listening out there, you know, thought we were saying otherwise, no, we're, we know that this is not true, but right. yet you have certain portion of practitioners and assessors believing that this is true is I think your point. Yeah. Sometimes maybe to take an example of eye contact, an autistic 12 year old is maybe not diagnosed, let's say, and is trying really hard to mask and camouflage autistic features or difficulties or no, you know, has been pressured to do eye contact that was uncomfortable for them. And maybe another thing that's important from a neurodiversity affirming perspective is to understand that this sort of masking or hiding or trying to sort of fit in in a way that fits some kind of neurotypical norm is, is, is can be quite harmful. And that's, and that's one of many reasons why you might see some kids who can kind of hold it together during the school day and then they really melt down at home because they've really 
it, it just took so much out of them. So, so these pieces I mentioned earlier, the de-emphasizing of the functioning labels, stop using the sort of high functioning, low functioning, those kind of terms really do not benefit the person getting the label at all. In fact, steers us away from understanding people as moving up and down the, the, the ladder, so to speak, or sort of presenting in different ways, you know, needing more support in some areas and less support in other areas, having, you know, some strengths in some areas and more challenges in others. So that's another piece I, I want to focus. And then on this next slide, we talk about assessment as an opportunity. Again, this thing that I see a lot is like, well, here's the diagnosis. It's based on these scores, on these things that are below these numbers. And these are the things that you must do immediately for your child because these are problems. Of course, there's more aspects for many clinicians, but that is a common thing that, that that's where the emphasis is. Also, we want to help families to reframe the challenges, right? Again, like, well, how is this challenge also a strength? For example, increase the compassion saying, okay, your child's not trying to drive you nuts by not being able to sit at the table, but these are the sensory sensitivities that are impacting their ability to do that. So helping everybody uh, better understand, helping the child understand themselves. I'm a, a, a proponent of telling children about their diagnosis. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. There's a, a tendency for many of us doing assessment to emphasize like, well, we are the expert, we are giving the diagnosis. And I think that we can, again, try to make them more therapeutic and collaborative in and of themselves rather than the sort of like, here's the diagnosis, this is what you need to do urgently, then we're gone, you know, and, and that is a real problem that I see. And along the line telling the child they're autistic. Now, this can look different, right? I mean, you know, different children at different ages with different processing abilities. Of course, the differences in how well one can understand this and, and process this. Parents need to be at an accepting place themselves with a the diagnosis when they're having this, this conversation. But I've seen this a lot. I've had a, an 18-year-old a long time ago had been diagnosed with Asperger's when he was five ask me, why did no one tell me I was autistic until last year? That would have helped me understand. And it's a really hard question to answer. You know, why didn't we? Again, I, I empathize with parents and people have valid reasons that we need to listen to. But I also think that when we don't talk about the diagnosis in front of the child or tell the child that they're autistic kind of conveys, well, this is something that we need to sweep under the rug and it's something kind of secret or, or shameful in some way right? Like that's not a healthy message to give to a kid. The kid often finds out anyway, they see, you know, they hear somebody else talk about it or a teacher it's written somewhere. And, you know, it's an opportunity to talk about autism in terms of strengths and challenges. Like I talked about before, the word autism does not have the same stigma for the child as it does for the adult, right? So, I mean, we can create stigma and negative associations by the way we talk about it, which we shouldn't do, but that happens. But again, in helping a child to understand themselves, eventually, you know, advocate for themselves. I do think it's important to tell children, talk about the diagnosis in terms of strengths and challenges, expose the child to famous autistic people, I think is something I always like to do. Rethinking how we support autistic people and their families. I mean, this cannot be more important where when I say that the goal this is something that many autistic people have been saying in, in all kinds of ways. Um, the goal is not to make the child look neurotypical. The goal is to promote well-being in everybody, for people to be happy, for people to be supported. But trying to make a child look neurotypical is A, harmful, B, it doesn't work, and is 
kind of the opposite message of accepting the child for who they are. And so that's why we want to value differences, these autistic ways of being and socializing. Stimming behaviors is a, is a concept that's frequently talked about in the autistic community because many autistic adults, maybe when they were children, they were doing some kind of stimming behavior and they were told to stop, that this is looks abnormal when really this behavior maybe had a function of regulating anxiety or excitement or, or an expression of excitement or joy uh, or uh, was some you know a behavior a child needed to do to help them feel comfortable in a certain situation that there's nothing inherently wrong with these types of behaviors right so so we need to really stay away from therapies that convey that in some way back in 2010 when i was finishing my doctorate i was interviewing young autistic adults but it was a qualitative dissertation it's basically 10 12 interviews young autistic adults between 18 and 25 talking about their views and experiences with, with therapy and therapists. And no one was saying like, oh, I wish that I had stopped doing this hand flapping or, or, or some kind of stimming behavior. No one was saying like, oh, I wish that I was able to pass better as non-autistic. Like that is not what, what people are saying. They're saying, I want, you know, greater acceptance from people around me. I, I don't want people to assume that I don't understand what they're saying just because I was labeled autistic. So presume competence. You know, I want help with bullying because that's what's going on. I want people to address some of the stigma and isolation. They talked about accommodating sensory sensitivities, listening to autistic people more about their views on therapy. These are the kinds of things I heard about, you know, the dissertation. It was not sort of like, oh, changing autistic behaviors. So another really critical piece that I like to talk about is around social skills training, uh, which is something that's very common in many therapy programs. Now, of course, there's many ways this could look. I think we can do socialization in very kind of ethical and neurodiversity affirming ways, or we could do it in not affirming ways. And so um, one of the things that this made me think of was something I read not too long ago. Um, there's an autistic researcher in the UK named Damien Milton who wrote about the double empathy problem, where it was sort of getting at how well autistic people and non-autistic people have different experiences and different understandings of each other. It's like a cultural mismatch in some way. Uh, so maybe they struggle to empathize with each other but it doesn't mean that the autistic people are inherently wrong and that there's something that they should be doing differently. So much emphasis and resources, again, changing the child, creating more uh, quote unquote appropriate neurotypical like social skills. And why aren't we spending more time training non-autistic people to be more accepting and understanding of autistic people? The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network Gala in November had some fantastic presentations where they had a neurodiverse panel and they were giving so many examples that were counter to the ones that neurotypicals use. So they'll say, oh, autistic people do this, that, or that. But what about neurotypical people? You know, they say, how are you? And nobody actually wants to know how you are. And it's right. just a routine. And that makes no sense to us because you're just saying something for the sake of saying something. Yeah. That was just one silly example, but they gave so many examples. It makes you realize like, yeah, they're totally right. Like right. all of the things that we do that are ridiculous and could be judged in the same way that neurotypicals are judging autistic 
behaviors and calling them deficits. I mean, that brings up a good point. It's like uh, you, you use the example of sort of chit chat. And uh, why is it considered more of a problem that some autistic people have difficulty doing small talk than it is the fact that neurotypical people insist on doing small talk? You know, again, we, we want to be critical of these sort of assumptions we have about neurotypical behavior. So, yeah, just just the way that there's so many miscommunications among neurotypical people where autistic people don't understand it. And they gave the example of being in a relationship like you say what you mean. But in neurotypical relationships, people never say what they mean. And right. they're always guessing what the other person is thinking. And, right. and if they don't answer back, what does that mean? And they're playing games with each other and this and that. And it was really hilarious. Yeah, no, I love that example. That's great. This next slide here, I have a quote. It says, the treatment of children who behave badly has been terrible throughout history. Uh, this is a quote from the book, Driven to Distraction. It's a book about ADHD by Dr. Ed Hallowell. As we've touched on, as many of you know, I mean, there's been a horrible history of how kids with uh, dis disabilities, autistic children have been, have been treated, the types of therapy that they've experienced and still do. One of the really important things I've taken from the neurodiversity paradigm, and, and I think it's important if we want to be doing neurodiversity affirming care, is noticing that the sort of emphasis on compliance that many largely ABA programs have, I think is a problem in and of itself. We want to help kids and, and people to say no, rather than pressing and pressing to comply with something. I think that we need to involve autistic people more and more into the input and uh, into the design and goals of the therapy itself. Um, and that really ties in with the right to self-determination, which gets at, you know, what does this person want? What does the autistic person want? These are really critical concepts that if we did some of the things to neurotypical kids that autistic kids have had to experience, it would be easier for some to think of it as unethical and inappropriate. And so why, if, it, if we were considered considering this emphasis on compliance and really trying to force a kid to do something that they're uncomfortable with, that I have seen, and I know that there's exceptions and variability in all these programs, but I have seen this type of thing happen. If we wouldn't do that to a neurotypical kid, why would we do that to a autistic kid? And that's a, that's a real issue there. So that's another thing I wanted to bring up. The number of times people said to us, and you know, even the person who diagnosed my child at one of the world's top hospitals in Canada said, oh, well, I said, oh, well, I think we're doing floor time. We're going to go with floor time. Well, I think you should consider ABA. Your, your child, you'd benefit from getting him to follow adult direction. And I, I was, I'm looking at this person like, you're kidding, right? <laughs> like, it's just a complete misunderstanding of why the child does what the child does. Like, just expecting that compliance. It just blew yeah. my mind. I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think, Daria, I mean, first of all, I think your initial interest in floor time should have been really explored and valued. And, you know, I think one of the things we're advocating for is more parent choice in therapy options. And But this is such a common thing where many parents are told, well, just do ABA because this is the thing that's offered. This is the dominant paradigm. This is the thing that insurance covers largely. And there's some ways that this is changing and we're, we're, we're working to, to change this. Um, that's a, unfortunately a really common picture. 
So getting into how the DIR floor time aspects of this that really fit well into a neurodiversity affirming framework. And so one thing that I think is key here and that what is also a key difference between an ABA and a floor time approach is this idea of letting the child lead. Like you mentioned, Daria, the, the doctor who diagnosed your child said, oh, well, we need to get your kid to follow directions more, do this and this and this. We spent a lot of time, there's a lot of time, I think, trying to get kids to fit into a box where it doesn't really work um, and it's harmful to the kid. Over emphasis on adult directed activities to try to get a kid to comply. Whereas in a DIR floor time model, we have much more emphasis on letting the child lead. A DIR model, the I, the individual differences part, where we're taking into account sensory differences and the caregiver's way of interacting with the child in a way that facilitates regulation, change the system, not the child. This kind of gets into that a little, a little bit more. It's like, how do we understand the sensory processing and the, how the environment, how do we understand the caregiver's way of, you know, of impacting the child? And I also like this focus on the emotional life, not just the surface behavior that gets into what we were talking about earlier, where like kids who have an oppositional label, these behaviors might just be seen as purposely or intentionally oppositional and therefore, we just need to do this and this and this, you know, these sort of behavioral reinforcement programs that, again, for many kids is not appropriate or is not working well. Dr. Greenspan and Dr. Weeder, who wrote Engaging Autism, really focusing more on the emotional life of the child and not just these surface behaviors, I think was a really important thing. I remember when Dr. Greenspan did one of those conferences I mentioned earlier, where we were talking with a family and a child was doing some kind of stimming behavior that was kind of seen as a bit disruptive in some way or not conducive to the situation a family was in or the classroom was in. We were all talking about sort of what to do about this. And so he, he said, well, actually, you know, let's love his idiosyncrasies. I mean, just that phrase, love his idiosyncrasies, far more neurodiversity affirming, I think, than many messages that are conveyed and have been conveyed and still are about autistic behaviors, quote unquote, that are, are considered problematic by some. Okay, a kid is wanting to talk about Minecraft and let's get in there with them. Let's get into a shared world where there's shared joy and connection. Let's go for the gleam in the eye. You know, it's a lot of what they were talking about. Let's tune into their world. And the fostering initiative part that Greenspan really emphasized that I that I love, I think is also an important piece. It ties into what I was saying before about how programs that have this over-focus on compliance is a real problem. Whereas we want children to be able to say no when it's appropriate, when, when that's what they're feeling. Um, rather than kind of pushing and pushing and pushing. I remember in many of the early conversations with Dr. Greenspan and training videos, it was always about like, let's not just do this thing to the child, like let the child come to you. And rather than just sort of saying, okay, here, give me the toy. Let's come here. Let's come sit down. Like, how can we entice the child, right? I mean, this is way more neurodiversity friendly way to approach this. There, there are these ways that I think ultimately Greenspan with his more emphasis on strengths and the conversations about children. These kinds of things, I think, are ways to promote more acceptance, which is really a central tenet of the that autistic self-advocates are speaking about, wanting more acceptance. And frankly, this leads to better 
relationships with children and adults on the spectrum, you know, better mental health outcomes, you know, when people are feeling more accepted that they don't have to mask, that they're, that they're not giving the message that something's wrong with them. This is one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to talk about this topic in the ICDL presentation a while ago. And again, thanks for letting me go on and on about it on this podcast today. Daria, thank you so much. Yeah. And you mentioned Dr. Ned, Dr. Edward Hollowell. Yes. I, I think he might even say even idiosyncrasies might be a tad insulting. And certainly Dr. Greenspan didn't mean it that way. And right. we talked about this before, like this, this was very forward for the time that he started all of this. It, you might say, love his traits, love his yeah. interests. Yeah. Um, I like and, that. And just, right. you know, really things that they're interested in, like you said, following the child's lead. Right. Exactly. All of us are, are more engaged if it's a topic we're interested in. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. So yeah, here's some resources that I like to direct people to. The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network is a great one. ASAN, Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. Lydia Brown is excellent. They've done presentations that I've seen and it has become a friend. Uh, the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective is a collective of largely speech, OT, therapists in a network, also very neurodiversity affirming. PDA, which I mentioned earlier, they have a website. If you look up PDA Society, you'll find their website with a lot of great resources there if it's something else that people are interested in. Well, thank you so much for sharing this presentation with us. Hopefully, we're providing that bridge of education from not knowing to an introduction, I would say. This is an introduction to the place where self-advocates are, which I will never pretend to be because I'm not a self-advocate. So I, I think this is a good bridge between those two and hopefully will help parents understand how important it is to love and accept their children for who they are and provide support, not look at them as deficient in any way and not make them feel like they're not good enough and and don't have qualities that other kids do because it's quite the opposite in many cases and i think anybody who's into dir floor time is already there for sure well thanks again and this is really great uh, opportunity to connect with you and and i'm so appreciative of of uh, the podcast and the work you're doing so thank you again well, thank you very much, too. And listeners, if you go to affectautism.com, you can look up Neurodiversity Informed Care, or you can look up Alex Klein, and I'll put links to some of the things we talked about in the blog write-up for this podcast. So thanks again, and tune in again next week. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.